So welcome today to the Mindful on Purpose podcast. I am Christina Blackburn, the host, and we have, uh, we talk about innovative topics around domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and we speak with those who are working on the front line of this issue every month. Our podcast typically airs the first Friday of the month at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or Eastern Time. And uh, it we are, we, uh, provide this podcast through Speranza Human Compassion Project, which is a nonprofit organization. We work in the Philadelphia area as well as New York City area. And we provide, uh, we develop training courses, we do research around domestic violence interventions, and how we can best serve those working on the front line of this issue. Uh, we do conferences, we do uh, three conferences a year. One is typically in October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, uh, and that's just best practices. We do one in December and we talk about um, child endangerment in children in the middle. And then we typically do one in March that's around um, the special populations. So it may be pregnant women, um, those with substance use disorder, anyone um, who may be extra vulnerable um, victim of domestic violence. So I'd like to introduce um, Honorable Karen Gopi today. She is a judge um, in New York City in Queens area, who was born in Trinidad and immigrated to the US when she was just one year old. Uh, she grew up in Brooklyn and attended local public school there. She earned her BA um, in political science, sociology, women's studies, and then her JD from St. John's Law School. She began her legal career at Kings County District Attorney's Office. And for eight years, she prosecuted misdemeanors and felony matters. And she specialized in cases involving domestic violence and child abuse and speaking up for those without a voice. So welcome, Honorable uh, Karen Gopi today. Thank you so much for being here and talking with us today. So I would like to give you a moment to tell a little bit about yourself, about your background. Um, what made you get into, want to get into law? And then tell us a little bit about like what made you want to even apply for the Supreme Court um, in New York, in New York. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. So thank you so much, Ms. Blackburn, for having me and for um, that wonderful introduction. Um, I really am honored to be a guest on this podcast and to lend some of my knowledge um, and hopefully help um, others out there. Um, in terms of a little bit of my background, I think you've covered the majority of it. I was a prosecutor for approximately eight years. I also uh, was a court attorney for approximately 10 years, and I've now been um, on the criminal court bench in Queens County for six years, and I was recently elected to the New York State Supreme Court, and I hope to be um, presiding in Queens um, come January. And so there were a lot of questions in the one question you asked. Um, let me see. So what got me interested in law? Um, so having immigrated to this country and um, being from Trinidad, a very um, West Indian male dominated culture and traditions, living um, in East New York, Brooklyn, growing up amongst uh, 
a variety of other um, immigrant populations. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that I saw as a young girl, you know, one of which was um, females were treated very differently than males. There was a different level of respect and a different level of what was tolerated and not tolerated or um, expectations. I saw um, poverty, lack of education in this country, um, how it affected minority communities and communities that uh, did not understand the system, did not trust the system, did not trust law enforcement, um, and were not able to use the same services that other people could if something had happened to them. Um, I also saw the fear of immigration and law enforcement. I saw the inability to you know, fill out what would have been considered simple forms that, but that seemed foreign to even people who understood English. Um, and I realized at having gone to school in this country, um, I was able to offer services and explain things and break things down to family members and friends and help with petitions. Um, and that inspired me to do more, learn more, and get more involved. And I realized that, you know, the way out of a lot of the circumstances, whether it was poverty or, um, you know, just kind of where we were in life was education and was um, helping others. Because it wasn't just about me being successful, it was about making sure our community did better and had better opportunities. Oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, you know, sharing a little bit about your background. That, that's um, thank you for that. Uh, okay, so let's. I'm going to start into our questions for today. Um, oh, and I wanted to talk a little bit about how we met. So we met at a couple of events that were in New York um, around Black Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I was talking a little bit about what, you know, I do with Spronza and in the community. And um, we, we got to talking and that's how, you know, I, I asked you if you'd be willing to be a part of the podcast. So I'm so thankful that you agreed. And, and this is wonderful to have you here today. So let's, I would like to know a little bit about your first few cases and how you felt when you were first starting. Did you feel like overwhelmed or did you feel like empowered? Like I can do this. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. So um, my first job at a law school was at the Kings County District Attorney's Office where I was a prosecutor. And um, in those days, we, you start off handling misdemeanor matters. And I can't tell you that I remember the exact same first case that I handled because you handle sometimes hundreds of cases in a day. Um, but I can say to you that I remember the first time standing up in court and uttering the words for the people of the state of New York. And I know it might sound a little silly, uh, those words, but the reality is that at the moment you stand there in court with everyone listening to you, and I'm you know, one of hundreds of people that go before a court, um, you feel the enormity of that, those words. It's the, 
pressure to do justice, the pressure to pay attention, the pressure to do the right thing, um, whether that means going forward with a conviction, asking for bail, or realizing there's not enough evidence to go forward with a case. And so, you know, it's not just about going ahead on a case. It's about really um, reviewing things and, and doing the right thing on a case, whether that means for a victim or for the person that's accused. Absolutely. So I know that you just won um, the Supreme Court seat in New York. And tell us a little bit about that. Tell us what made you want to run for the seat. I'm curious. So I'm going to go back a little bit to kind of explain the whole story. Um, so as I started off saying, um, you know, growing up, I wanted to do something that was unheard of those days. You're talking about a young female immigrant with out means announcing that she wanted to be, you know, not only go to graduate school, but to become an attorney and a criminal attorney. Um, so it was not a popular thing, whether it was within my family or within friends. It, it, it seemed like an impossibility, almost like if I told people that I wanted to build a rocket ship and go to the moon. Um, and when I started in my career, whether it was, you know, college or law school, um, or even in my neighborhood, there were not a lot of people that sounded like me or, or looked like me or, you know, from my background. So there were struggles, whether it was in college or law school or in the district attorney's office, um, fitting in, um, deciding, you know, the level of assimilating versus being myself um, and standing out sometimes not necessarily for the right reasons. And, you know, that I think helped to empower me to work harder, um, to feel, to find comfort in my skin and in my thoughts um, and how I wanted to do things. And I also realized very early in the career that I could not practice in quite the same way as everybody else. I had to bring um, my reality to any position that I came to. And when I say that, I mean, the fact that I am an immigrant, the fact that I am a mom, the fact that, um, you know, I practice a different religion and I look um, more like the people that come before the court than the people that um, preside over the court. And so for me, it was really important to be authentic and it was really important to educate others um, about our cultures, our backgrounds and, you know, what the minority view of things. And, you know, the longer that I practiced, the more that I realized that I had something to offer that not everyone else did, um, whether it was as a prosecutor or a court attorney that put me in a unique position to be, um, to preside and be on the bench. And having been a criminal court attorney for a number of years and trying to bring my background, uh, my personal background, along with my professional background. I have, you know, expertise and practice in immigration and family and criminal and in um, housing court, how all of those areas kind of interject with the people that come before us and why it's really important to understand all of that and understand the motivation 
of some of the individuals that make um, the decisions that they do that end up in court um, and to educate those that are on the bench to understand um, a different culture, a different tradition, a different religion and why individuals would do things that are unexpected in, in certain circumstances, if that makes any sense. And I really truly believe the same way that it's important to have juries that reflect the people that um, they're judging. It's also important to have judges and other, you know, local politicians, et cetera, really represent the communities that come before them and that need them because otherwise you don't understand what the needs of the community are or what the rationale of the community are. Um, and I think that's really, really important to be reflected. And that's one of the reasons I ran for Supreme Court because I really truly feel like we need diversity and representation in all aspects of leadership. I also feel like given my experience, both personal and professional, um, I add something to the court and I hopefully open doors for others. That is amazing. And, you know, it's so wonderful to hear because a lot of times, you know, women feel like, oh, I had to hide this part of myself to make it in certain careers. So it's very refreshing that you were like, no, I'm going to use this to help advance my career. And that that's wonderful. It's, and thank you for sharing that. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, the outcomes you've seen and what makes you proud doing this work? So what makes me proud is the ability to affect someone's life positively um, and to make their experience in court, while not necessarily a positive one, a more tolerable one. Um, one of the things that I've learned, um, obviously when you're dealing with victims or someone who has been traumatized, it's really important to listen and to understand and not to judge. Um, and so, allowing or making sure there is that environment when someone comes before the court, I think is so important. Um, and on the other hand, when you have someone suspected or accused of a crime, um, guilty or not guilty, uh, there should be a level of respect and a level of that there's a fair playing field and they're going to have a, a equal shot. Um, and so I think on both ends, it's really, really important for their, for, to do that, to have legitimacy in the process and for people to respect the court and listen to court orders. If you don't trust the system, whether it's the police or the DAs or the courts, you're not going to comply with anything that the court offers. And then there's going to be this fight back and forth, which makes no sense. So to me, it makes more sense to put in the time, listen to an individual. And I've even actually been told when I've sentenced someone, um, and it sounds silly, but I've been thanked for giving them a fair shot, even though I've sentenced them to a number of years in jail. Got it. And I understand. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, so do you often find that there are situations that come before your court where a victim may have 
a fear of or an additional issue going on. So as immigration, so maybe they're a victim of domestic violence, but they're also an, an undocumented in, immigrant, or maybe they're a victim of domestic violence, but they were a substance use, you know, you know they were using substance. So there, there's an extra layer of fear because of the other issue that they have going on. Um, and how do you, how does the court look at that? And how do you look at those cases where there might be another competing issue going on? Well, I, having worked with both um, young adults and with children and with um, adults, people come before the court, generally speaking, with a host of issues going on. There's never just the one. Um, we see what the person is accused of doing, but we don't necessarily see who the person is. Um, and it takes a lot to get a better idea of who the person is. And sometimes, you know, we rely on other things. We rely on interviews that were done. We rely on criminal um, rap sheets, which will tell me if there's a history of drug abuse, a history of violence, um, whether or not it's repeat offenses against a certain person, whether or not this is the first time they've committed a crime. I'll get a general idea of whether or not they're employed, where, where they're living, who they're living with, um, how long they've been living there. It paints somewhat of a picture of the person coming before me. Um, most of the instances, especially of repeat arrest offenders, um, there are things in the background that you can almost check off. Um, and if you spend enough time either talking to the attorney or going through the paperwork, you figure it out. Um, domestic violence cases, sex abuse cases, um, even some drunk driving cases. You see oftentimes there's a history of abuse. So whether there's a cycle of abuse, um, also drug cases, a lot of drug possession cases. Um, you see that either the person or the person's family um, have been, there's been some abuse there. You see self-medication, you see um, a history of the DV cycle sometimes, you see um, a history of abusing substances to almost self-medicate. Um, so, it's clear there's always multiple issues happening and that the person that comes before us comes with complicated issues that's not gonna have one-stop solutions. So when you're looking at a case like that, cause you know, and, and, and our target audience is our other first responders, but primarily doctors and nurses that may see victims come into the emergency department primarily, but it could be OBGYN, it could be pediatrics. And so we're, I'm just trying to help them to understand a little bit about the court system and how that impacts a victim's life. And when we're talking about these multiple things that a victim might be experiencing, so say they came in, they got injured, and now you know the police are involved, but they're undocumented immigrant and they're afraid to prosecute or they're afraid to get a protective order, right? because of the other things in their background, or maybe they were using drugs and now, now they're afraid or they had possession or whatever. Um, how, how, do, how does the court handle that in, the, in these type of cases? Do you look at the full everything and you say, 
or are you just looking at the DV case that they came in for at that moment? Or what do you, or do you have to take those other things into consideration that are in their background? Well, I'm going to try to answer that by first explaining one of the first DV cases that I, I tried as a prosecutor. So when I was in the district attorney's office, um, one of the places I was assigned for a number of years was the Domestic Violence Bureau. And that's all we handled every single day was domestic violence cases. And it, the numbers, I can tell you, were overwhelming. Um, and there were days that we called um, intake days where you meet dozens of women and men who were alleging abuse by an intimate partner. Um, and when I tell you the accusations were, you know, as small or minimum as, you know, yelling or throwing something at a wall to hurting a pet to things that we would never consider to be something that you do in the name of love, um, using a gun, using a knife, um, using cigarettes to burn, et cetera, et cetera. When I say I've seen the gamut of what one person can do to another, um, I don't even know if that begins to explain the stuff that I've seen. Um, so one of the first cases that I ever did in um, domestic violence that I took to trial involved um, a young couple. It was the the mom, the dad, and if I remember correctly, is two kids, one of which was, I believe, four years old, if I remember correctly. I remember it being very young, three, four, something along those lines. They were living in a shelter and um, a family shelter. They had moved around from one borough to another. I remember there were cases in the Bronx, in Manhattan, and at the time I was prosecuting the case in Queens. And the case in Queens, from what I remember, involved other people getting involved. So Ma, defendant dad was um, hitting mom behind closed doors. Um, and there was a lot of yelling and screaming, which attracted attention. And so other individuals in the shelter that were responsible for working there um, responded to the door. And they, the defendant or dad opened the door and they saw mom crying. They saw like um, redness. Uh, there was an outcry about please stop him or something along those lines. Um, I think later on medical reports indicated, you know, black and blues and injuries to various parts of her body. Um, the defendant was holding a belt in his hand, he, he had used the belt against her. And um, the child, and I'll never forget this, interviewing the officer in my office afterwards, the three or four year old child took the belt from dad and started hitting against his, himself saying, dad, this is the way you did it? Indicating what he had seen dad doing to mom. Um, mom, I met with, and we were getting ready for trial. And mom decided, um, because it takes a really long time for cases to come to court and for cases to go to trial, decided she wanted to get back together with him and did not want to prosecute. And I, at that point, was looking at the fact 
you know, not only did we have this case, there was this history of at least five to 10 years of abuse from one county to another where the abuse was elevating. And now we, we have children who are observing it, who are now thinking it's commonplace and normal, who might in the future repeat this conduct or um, suffer from depression, et cetera, because of what they've seen and the lack of control that they had. Um, and, you know, it's not that as a DA, you have absolute discretion, but you can determine whether you're offering a plea offer or you're taking something to trial and whether or not you can prove it with the victim without the victim. And in this particular case, um, the victim chose to testify on his behalf against the prosecution. So I was placed in the very unusual circumstance. And this was, again, in the 1990s, before cases were prosecuted without victims, where before it was commonplace, that I was looking to see whether or not I can prove the case without the victim. And in fact, with the victim testifying, nothing happened or that he was a good guy. Um, and I had to rely on the witnesses who responded to the yelling. I had to rely on the medical records from the doctors and what they wrote and EMS. And I had to rely on what we called excited utterances, which was the what she said when she opened the door. And um, there was doubts of whether or not I could prove that case. And there were doubts of whether or not I should prove that case because we were looking at a victim that's no longer interested. Um, and I kind of took the stand that if she can't take a stand for herself, um, I was going to. And I went full speed ahead and it took a couple of days and it raised some eyebrows because as I said, it was not the usual thing to do, a case without a victim. And we actually got a conviction and um, I got a judge to sentence him to 90 days in jail. Uh, and I'm very, very proud of that. Um, and I know the victim was not happy with me and I can't say whether I helped or hurt her family more. That's not something that I have not thought about. It's something that I have. But I also thought that if she could not say to him that she, that this is not okay, that this is wrong, that she matters, that someone needed to. And I'm hoping that I sent that message. And I gave her some time to think without him in the picture and to make a decision for herself. That is an amazing story. Wow. And how brave of you to take this on, you know, at a time when, you know, typically they, you weren't doing cases like this. So that's amazing. Two things that come to mind, and I'm just going to uh, bring this up. One is you could, you know, in one aspect have saved her life, right? Because you never know. I mean, you look at the Gabby Petito case had they broke them up and she admitted that she hit him first is what was what she said, which often happens, you know, victims say they did, they don't tell the truth. It could have happened. I, I don't know, but I'm just saying. Or had they the police told therefore they said something or if only the dinner was right or only the kitchen was clean or yeah, I've heard it all. Yeah, but in that particular case, she said she hit him first. So even if at that, if the police, if the police show up and she says she hit him, then they should have separated them, you know, and that could have saved her life. 
in your case, you prosecuted, he went to jail for 90 days, that could have saved her life, or it could do the opposite where next time something happens, she'll be afraid to come forward, right? And that is the rub. And I don't know the answer to that, unfortunately. And that's one of those things that haunt you, whether, you know, I specialize in domestic violence and sex abuse against children. Um, There's damage that's done. You, you, regardless of what you do, whether you go forward with the prosecution, whether you drop the prosecution, there's damage that's done. There's people that's hurt and it can't be undone. And you, it's one of those things that based on your experience and based on your gut and based on your history, you have to make a judgment call. And, you know, you hope and you pray that judgment call is the right judgment call. Um, but I can't say you always know. Uh, and just, um, just a quick sidebar to, to that. How often do you see um, them get jail time? So would you say like 50% of the time, um, how how often does it happen and when they when it actually comes to your court well i really think it depends on what the accusations are um and what the injury is okay and what the background is so um it really truly is case specific um a lot of times especially with the domestic violence cases we're looking to change behavior and wake the person up that's accused of doing whatever. Um, And one of the things that I always think about is, you know, the courts, the police, the district attorney's office, we issue orders of protection. We tell them to stay away from each other. We we almost start dictating our expectations. Um, Not that we're not that people are not listening to the victim because they're supposed to be a voice for the victim. But a lot of times the ultimate decision is not made by the victim, it's made by others. Um, And so I'm always cognizant of that. I'm also like to know if it seems that the victim and defendant are back together or not back together. And what that means. And I know that might sound silly when we're talking about punishment, but for me, if it looks like the victim and defendant are getting back together and there's this abusive relationship, I'm more interested in monitoring that person and getting that person's services and counseling and help so that we're not looking at the victim being re-victimized and giving her or him a voice. Um, if we're looking at something that we're talking about that's very serious, where it involves a weapon or involves major injury, then we are looking at jail or probation or a combination of both, maybe combined with services or not. You know, um, the, the more that you do this work, the more that it is clear um, to anyone that does this work that whether it's jail or some particular punishment that does not make the abuse go away, whether the victim leaves or stays, that does not make the abuse go away. Um, if the victim is lucky and leaves, the likelihood is the abuser will just abuse someone else. I can't tell you how many times in court I have outrageous cases before me, you know, where one victim alleges four or five different incidents that grow in severity 
and the defendant's in court with his new girlfriend that's listening to the charges. And possibly during the pendency of one case, now I have another victim. Um, so unless there's treatment and services and dealing with some of the underlying issues, whether it's mental health issues, whether it's alcohol issues, controlled substance issues, anger issues, combination of all of it, um, that person's gonna continue offending. And I don't know if that means offending against the same person, offending against kids or offending against future individuals. So all of that always is in my mind when it comes to sentencing. Do they have anger management classes that the offenders have to go through? And do you it, see an outcome to that, like a positive outcome? So there are anger management classes. Um, I think the minimum I've seen so far are six. Usually um, there's 12 sessions or 26 sessions. There's batterers, what's called batterers intervention programs, where it's group therapy with individuals. And that tends to be either 26 weeks, which is about six months, or 52 weeks, which is a year. Um, there is, you know, parenting skills. There, there are so many services offered by community organizations, by treatment programs that the court looks into and tries to determine if there are appropriate curriculums and appropriate for offenders. Um, but the reality, and I want to compare it to drug treatment, you know, you get what you give or what you put into it. Some people attend programs and it's like, yeah, 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 that's the other guy. I don't really have a problem. Um, and some people attend programs and it's a real awakening and helps them change. But it's trying to figure out the right program for the right for the person and handling all needs. And not all programs are the same. And, you know, not all offenders are the same. A lot of times with offenders, we're looking at a host of different issues um, in addition to anger. That's true. You do really hard work. So I just want to stop and say, I really appreciate the work that you do. It's very difficult and we need more people like you, right? That are, that are compassionate and understand both sides, right? Not just the, the abused side, but also the offender side. Um, so a little bit about that. What do you think, um, like other judges, do you find other judges to be as compassionate as you are and as aware of what's happening as you are? Or do you off, do you see like victims might come in and then are re-victimized by the systems that they're like seeking help from? So I think the bench is changing and we certainly have more diversity on the bench. We have more women on the bench. We have more people with various backgrounds on the bench. And I think it helps. Um, do I think we're there yet? No. Um, I think we can do better. Um, and I think that it's a mistake with especially these specialty parts that involve so much. Um, it's not one size fits all and not everybody is the right person to deal with these cases. Um, and so I think there needs to be training and there needs to be like real outreach for these kinds of jobs. It's almost like um, a social worker. You need a certain personality and you need a certain background in order to work 
with um, certain segments of the population. I think it's equally important whether you're a judge or you're a prosecutor or you're um, an officer that deals with these particular offenses to have um, extra training to do so and have an interest in the field. I, I don't think it should be just switch everyone and anyone in because I think it's a disservice for something that's really, really serious and really, really important and something that affects our society for you know decades and generations to come. And if we don't get it right, we're looking at it just kind of always continuing and we're looking at so many additional victims and so many additional kids that we're, we're sending to self-medication, we're sending to criminal activity. And if we, we care about changing things, we have to address the issues now. Do you all receive any training around this? We certainly do. Um, there is training when you become a judge and there's basic training about domestic violence and about other specialty offenses. Um, and there's specialty parts in um, New York City for domestic violence, for sex abuse, for veterans, um, et cetera. And most of the individuals that practice in those parts ask to go to those parts because they have an interest. Um, sometimes people are just assigned because of need. Um, and there's ongoing services that are offered for training, but I think, you know, there's a different perspective when you learn about it, as opposed to if you lived it and you've known people that's gone through it. Um, it's clinical versus practical. So true. Mm -hmm. That's so, so true. Um, we're, so within these systems, because, you know, New York, city is, is huge and you have so many people, you have so many victims that you're you're seeing all the time. Where do you think that the systems are failing women? Is it the calling of the 911 and not being able to get through, the police officers not showing up timely? Is it the awareness, like simple awareness campaigns, right, around domestic violence? And are you a victim? Are you not a victim? Am I just in this crazy relationship? Or, you know, what do I, what should I be doing? You know, if I do find myself as a victim and just that awareness piece, or once you are now in the system, cause you find yourself a victim and maybe homeless, you know, sometimes it, or injured, you know, you know, our, what we train around is, you know, there are these gaps that exist for women, right? That they're falling through these cracks, right? Because I'm reaching out for help or I'm calling 911, they, the police don't show up, or, you know, I'm trying to get a protective order and I'm waiting for, come back two or three days to get this protective order, but I gotta go to work, I got kids, or they're in the ED at the emergency department, there's no social worker, so they're waiting there 10, 12 hours till the next social worker comes in in the morning, but hey, I gotta go to work. I got kids, I can't just sit here, so I gotta leave. So these women are constantly, or you know, women, children, and men who are, who are victims are constantly falling through these cracks. Do you have any advice on how we can better support victims as they're reaching out for help? So even in the most ideal of circumstances where the police respond right away, um, there's an arrest made, the person is taken out of the home and the victim gets medical attention and gets all the supports and services. And I'm saying in an ideal circumstance, because I understand that's 
rare, unfortunately, um, then, you know, that person, the person accused is seeing a judge within 24 hours and with bail reform and with everything else going on, that person's probably getting out of jail within 24 hours and back trying to get home or back in the community, um, getting in touch with family and friends to possibly get back in touch with the victim or send messages or try to um, get the victim to drop charges. And that's in the best of circumstances. And then before you know it, the next court date is 45 days out or 90 days out or, you know, which translates to about three months. And if you have such long court dates, then you have an individual that does not feel necessarily accountable. In many circumstances, you have a victim that's on pins and needles for that length of time um, that has to figure out how to survive without um, that accuser, I mean, that abuser in the home. And many times, you know, a victim is relying on that abuser for, um, for their home, for financially, for a lot of things. You know, um, it's a difficult process. There's not a one fix or one area that needs fixing. There's many, many areas that need fixing. Um, and, you know, again, in the best case scenario, if that person is prosecuted and that person ends up in jail, you're looking at, you know, a year later where the victim has had to survive, has had to figure it out, has had to, you know, go live their regular life, go to a job that the offender knows about take them, their kids to school where the offender can reach them. Order of protection is a piece of paper. It's a strong piece of paper, but at the end of the day, it does not, if the person does not um, comply with it, it, it gets the person arrested, but that person can cause harm before they're arrested. Um, so there are lots and lots of gaps in the system. There are lots and lots of problems in the system. Um, resources are minimal. And a lot of times for a victim to leave their abuser that does not have financial backing or family support, the system only offers shelters and the shelters are awful. Um, um, I'm glad so you many times a, so a victim would rather stay in an abusive home okay. than go to a shelter and have to go through that kind of um change of life and put their children through it. So it's not something that's not recognized, it's something that is recognized, but it, and there's money and there's support in its community organizations. And I don't know why um, there's not more. I don't know why there's no more coordinating efforts. I don't know why as a society we don't do better, um, but I know that we should. <laughs> um, I also know, you know, one of the things I have done, and I know so many community organizations have done, there's, there's so many organizations around domestic violence that exist to help victims. Um, and there's even within the court system, um, family justice centers where they try to combine organizations with city um, agencies to help with um, immigration, to help with um, financial, with housing, et cetera, et cetera. But all of this takes time. 
Um, all of this is appointments, all of this, you know, they're looking at documentation, they're looking at income, they're looking at resources. Um, and so there are definite failures. There's people who are doing really hard work. And I'm just wondering if there's not enough coordination, if there's not enough victim involvement. Um, and what else we can do? I know when we've done seminars and outreach, whether it's at you know churches or temples or hospitals or going out to the community, the people who show up tend to be the people who do this work and not the people that we need to reach, the people who are suffering. And that could be because they're, you know, in the, there's a shame aspect to this. And so no one's going to necessarily come to a room and admit that they are a victim um, or they're afraid of family or friends um, or they're not coming to a public forum to do this. Um, so a lot of times we're speaking to the experts and we're not speaking to the people who need it. And so I think we have to do a better job of offering um, confidential services um, to victims in the community. And I think what you're doing in terms of working with the hospitals and working with the frontline um, workers is really important because the, that's the moment that someone is in crisis, is looking for help and is more likely to, to be honest and open about what's going on. And so it's the critical moment to try to give resources and to make a change in that person's life. And one of the reasons why I brought up the first domestic violence case that I worked on and how we had to rely on medical records, et cetera, and what's, what happens within the first few minutes of our response is because I think we forget how important that is and the documentation of that. Um, a lot of times, just because of the nature of the case and the nature of the relationship, um, victims cannot speak for themselves and may not um, follow through. And the best chance, and I'm not talking about, it's not about putting someone in jail. It's not about, you know, every case needs to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But if you're even forcing someone to get services, and I use the word force lightly, um, I often would explain to the victims that I talk to in domestic violence, um, let's get the offender help. Let's get the offender counseling. Let's get the offender services. Let's work on the alcohol issue. Let's work on the underlying stuff. You want to stay together? Okay, but let's do these things first. And they, a lot of times the victim themselves will say to you, say to us, you know, this person needs X, drug treatment, alcohol treatment, um, wh whatever it is. Um, help with finding a job because that's what's causing, you know, the some of the issues in the home. But it human nature is if you're looking at a dismissal of a case or going into treatment, the person's always going to pick dismissal of the case. I don't have to do anything. If you're looking at jail versus treatment, then we can say, okay, you pick, and then we're almost forcing into treatment. Um, but in order to do so, we have to have a viable case to hold over someone's head and say, okay, we got you. This is what you've done. This is what we're going to prove. And we'll hold off in sentencing or hold off on going to trial if you do X. 
and the X can be whatever treatment or whatever services or whatever monitoring. Um, but we need a viable case. And in order to have a viable case without, without a victim that's willing to necessarily stand up to the abuser, we need our first responders to document, document, document everything they see, everything they hear. So whether it's the outcry of the victim or the extent of the bruising or the relationship between the parties and the person's name, all of these things are really, really important for making a case. So two things I want to say to that. Um, one is um, around the awareness piece, right? I think we're just totally missing the prevention. Like, you know, women empowerment. If a woman empowers herself, she has self-confidence, she has her own money, she can leave, right? It's easier to do that when you are, you know, you, you have that self-esteem. You say, I don't have to take this. I have my own money or I can get my uh, another job. Um, and, you know, just showing women that it's really that easy. Just change your mindset of, oh, my God, I have to stay. We have these kids, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to do anything. You know, any minute you ready, you can get up and leave. So I think it's just that prevention piece. We do really good with like HIV prevention. We do really good with like breast cancer awareness prevention. But I just find around domestic violence, we're not doing any prevention you know we're not empowering these women we're not doing tv campaigns right autism even autism awareness they have really good pink campaigns around that like you can tell it within 10 steps from watching one commercial if your child has autism it could be the same thing for domestic violence it's not a heavy lift and i feel like if women started realizing what was happening in their home because there's more prevention done they could start taking more agency over their self and over their relationships so i wish there was more prevention done one I do, just to interrupt for a second there is some prevention and i remember a campaign maybe going back a few years where it was a woman with a black eye um that was on this was a media campaign that was on the trains was on um bus stops was on um, other things talking about domestic violence and being able to speak out and answer those questions. I do agree there needs to be more prevention, but I think it has to be a combination of prevention where we're reaching out directly to the person that is being abused. But I think we also have to reach out to communities and change the community mindset. Um, so often when you speak to a victim, they will tell you that they felt pressure to stay not just because of finances, because I've seen, you know, a lot of the individuals that stay, there is financial issues. Um, but a lot of other individuals that stay, I've worked with victims with every means in the world. Um, impressive jobs. I've had colleagues in the district attorney's office that were being abused by, um, by their partners. And so you're looking at, you know, we're talking about intelligent um, in the leaders in our community that face um, abuse. And so it's a combination of empowering, but it's also a combination of changing mindset. And that's changing mindset of families, changing mindset of um, religious officiants who, you know, so many times the message that is sent is intact family, intact family, intact family. And I think as a society, we forget sometimes intact family, if it's unhealthy or traumatic, 
is not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. Um, and I think we need to change kind of that philosophy and change the way that we address that. And it should the emphasis should never be on intact family. It should be healthy family, almost like we do healthy eating. Um, it needs to be healthy, right? It needs to be what is a healthy relationship? What is a healthy dialogue? What is a healthy, you know, way of speaking to each other? Healthy and safe, right? It should healthy be a safe, safe. Your home. It should be a safe place for you. Your home should not be the place where you feel the most fear. And that's one of the things that we talk about. We want to create home as a space where women and children, you know, that's our target can feel safe, you know, and if when you don't feel safe in your own home, whether you and because of abuse, there's nowhere where you can feel safe, you know, and so we're constantly want to battle that. But I also want to applaud you and thank you for talking through that whole cycle of what victims go through, because although you and I kind of know that, I tell you, I talk to doctors and nurses all the time, they have no idea about the court systems, how it works. They have no idea even about victimization, like, zero they if they haven't experienced it they don't have any reference point so so a victim will come in and they're just like why don't you just leave like this makes no sense you know and they're not understanding that background struggle right they're not understanding the financial and the children and the entanglement that happens um when you're in the relationship and then that fear right it's an overwhelming fear of this person whether you're there or you leave you still are going to have that fear all the time until they decide to move on or not you know you know onto like the next person like you were saying um they still have that fixation on you and you still if you have children in common it's a constant fear that these people are feeling which is one of the reasons why they we you know I know that when I was a victim, one of the reasons I was staying and still today, I still feel fear, you know, and it's been 15, 16 years. So, um, you know, it, it, that is one of the crippling things that I think first responders don't understand. And that is a why a lot of women, when the police come, because a lot of I've talked to a lot of police officers about this and they say, well, Christina, they call me, they call 911. And then when I show up, they turn on me. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, why do you think they do that? And they're like, well, they, they tell me they like to get hit. I hear this from almost every police officer I've talked to. It's like really crazy. Now, who likes to get hit? I say, do you like to get hit? No, but she does. And I'm like, no, she doesn't like to get hit. It's her fear. Like, she's afraid that if you don't take this guy, he's going to abuse her even further because he knows she called 911. And she's or just even worse than that. And I, I'm not sure yeah. if people realize that if they do arrest the person, now she is in fear, and I'm using the word she, um, is in fear of his family and his friends who are going to be knocking on her door, telling her, how dare you, and why did you, and that's your husband, and look at what you did to him, and look at, he's going to lose his job. Like, it becomes the guilt and the, you know, you're supposed to protect family among, above all else, but they forget they didn't protect her. Very good point, especially if this is a multiple thing, right? I've had to call 911 a couple of times. So I know what's going to happen the next time I call 911. So I'm probably not going to call, right? Because their family is going to come and harass me or whatever might happen. So it's it, there's a tremendous amount of, amount of fear um, around this. So I know we're coming up on time. So if you could just give us like, you know, high level, some advice you would like to give to victims and then also to other first to other first responders 
um, who work directly with uh, victims every day? Sure. So for victims, um, you don't have to live this way and you should not live this way. Um, we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to feel safe. Whereas the person that loves you should love you for you and love should not hurt. Um, and that doesn't mean that every relationship is wonderful and there's no problems. Um, relationships mean work, but if you're flinching and you're afraid and you don't know if you're going to make it through the latest incident or you're up all night trying to figure out, you know, what, when's the next time or how I'm going to um, recover from whatever the latest injury is. Um, or you're flinching when he, he or she comes near you or you're ducking from things being thrown or you're afraid of what your kids are learning. Um, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Um, and even though you may not see the end of the tunnel or it might seem like a really hard road, and I'm not at all saying that it's not because it is but there is an end to it. And the sooner that you take step one, the sooner you will get to help and you're looking at a possible, possibly healthy and happy life. And whether that means being alone, whether that means being with a partner in the future, whether that means just providing your children an opportunity, um, it's so essential for your own um, mental health. It's so essential for your family, that you get help and that you get out. Um, love is not supposed to be fair. Um, and don't confuse um, possessiveness and, and crazy behavior and abuse for love. It's not healthy love. And if you're choosing to stay with the person that may be abusing you, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, financial, whatever, um, realize what it is and get help and suggest that that person also gets help so that you can build a healthy relationship together. It's not a way to live. And, you know, these things escalate that what may start off as something that did not seem like a big deal or that gets explained away or that you're choosing to believe it was just a really bad day or he was going through X. Um, when there's a first time, there's usually multiple times and it gets worse over time. And the more you accept, the worse it gets. Um, and just know that. And you don't have to live like this. No, no one does. No one deserves it. So that's to the victim, to first responders. Um, you're there because people are relying on you to help, whether you're responding as an officer, whether you're the EMS provider or you're the doctor or the nurse or the social worker. While it's human nature to judge, you're not there in the moment to judge. You're not there in the moment to tell the person what they need to do. You're there to listen and to document and to supply resources um, and offer help. Treat the wounds, make the report, take down the information. 
Um, most of the things that we think that we're telling someone in that moment are not things that they don't know. They do know. Um, and by us thinking we know better than that person in that moment, we're not providing a safe space for that person to talk. We're, we're doing what the abuser did. We're shutting that person down. We're not giving them a voice. Um, and it's important when that person is finally comfortable and has reached out to help or for help that we provide the opportunity to listen and we provide the opportunity to try to make a real connection and offer real help. Oh my goodness. This has been so amazing. Thank you, uh, Judge Karen Gopi for your time today. And um, we, like I said, our podcast is Mindful on Purpose. We air every, um, typically every first Friday of the month at 10 a.m. Eastern time. We also have webinars. You can visit our website at speranzaproject.org. So S-P-E-R-A-N-Z-A, which means hope in Italian, speranzaproject.org. Thank you so much, uh, Judge, for your time. Thank you. I, I enjoyed this and I'm here anything you need. Have a good day. <laughs>